Welcome to the So Lux Life Podcast, where our goal is to enhance the mental, physical, and spiritual luxuries in life. Make your life luxurious through knowledge, coaching, training, and technique. Visit us online at soulluxlife.com. Here's your host, Crispin J. Watson. Hi, you guys. Thank you for tuning in to the So Lux Life podcast. I'm Kristen, and I'm so excited because today I have a wonderful guest, Dr. Gabriel Rosanza. He's from Colombia. He's such a wonderful person, has a great pure spirit. I met him through his wife, Sarah. And thank you so much for joining us today, Gabriel. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Thank you, Chris. It's, it's my honor to be here. It is my pleasure to have you, and just thank you for taking out the time to speak with us. There's so much going on in the world today with this whole coronavirus pandemic. Everyone's freaking out. Everyone's scared. But first, tell us a little bit about you. As I mentioned, he is from Colombia, and um, just tell us who you are, where you went to school, and just some, some things you love to do. Absolutely. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I just want to clarify that I am from Columbia, the country, not from Columbia, the university in New York. (laughs) Yes. You get confused uh, (laughs) 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 sometimes. So um, I was born uh, in Columbia in 1960. Um, uh, My birthday's coming up in about uh, three weeks. Hopefully we'll be out out of this um, quarantine by then, so we'll be able to celebrate all together. Yes, and, that's exciting. Yes, uh, and um, I, I actually come from a, uh, a family that migrated to Colombia from two different uh, geographical points of the world, and um, from a Jew- both Jewish families with two mm-hmm. different backgrounds, and um, they met in this South American country, beautiful country. Um, born and raised, and uh, at some point in my uh, uh, mid-teenage years, I decided to um, come to America as a foreign exchange student, lived here for, uh, then I stayed after that, and ended up doing my college years here in Michigan, and then went back to Columbia um, to finish my medical school, and uh, that's where I practiced medicine, family medicine, and um, and nutritional medicine for uh, 15 years before uh, migrating back to um, America this time, landed in Alabama. And uh, I've been here for almost uh, 19 years uh, since I came here, and it's been quite a journey. <laughs> it has, and that journey is so awesome. Um, Gabriel is an author. He has a published book called My Road to You. You can find that on Amazon. Where else can they find your book? Basically on Amazon and um, and directly through me, um, and it's it's available in sixty five countries, um, and uh, it's been it's been a success. It has uh, it has a ton of great reviews. I really like it. Um, right now, I am working in translating it to Spanish because I have a large audience and friends and family that are uh, Spanish speaking only. So they have a little bit of difficult with the English version. So I'm working very hard on that. Oh, that's um, phenomenal. So, yeah. Wow. So exciting. So since we're on the topic of my road to you, we will start with that. And my road to you reflections from a life well lived. It starts out with a bang. You guys, if you read this book, Honestly, like the very first chapter where you speak about being on your balcony and seeing some men, you know, thrown out of a vehicle, gunned down in the blink of an eye, and you're you're right there witnessing that. What was going through your mind then when that happened? What like what what was your initial thought? That um that circumstance was one of many that um that I lived during the war. Uh, the drug wars in Colombia uh, back in the uh, back in the uh, late eighties and uh, and all through the nineties um, it was it was very very hard um, i uh, I was married uh, to to my uh, now ex wife back then and uh, basically I would leave the house and uh, I would just say goodbye as if I was not coming back um, because wow. I would, that uncertainty was was on the air everywhere in, in my city. 
which was, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful city, uh, very nice, but it lived through this uh, during almost uh, 15 years, this, this, and when, uh, when I witnessed that, that um, situation, that murder of those three um, poor men that I saw, uh, you know, gone down with, uh, with machine gun, um, it, was, it was surreal. Um, it was like, I couldn't believe that was what was happening. Uh, death was all around us anyway. Uh, we were seeing uh, roadside bombs exploding, you know, everywhere. Police um, trucks filled with, filled with, um, with young cops between 18 and 22 years old, uh, um, just being so, so, so cruel, you know, it was the level of, of cruelty and uh, during, during that war was, was beyond, beyond anything I can say in words. Um, and those, those were very hard times for, uh, for, for Colombia, especially for my city. <clears throat> Yes, I couldn't believe what I was reading. You were around 28 when this was happening, correct? That's correct. Uh, I had just recently married. I had finished uh, my medical school, and I was um, I was basically doing my my rural year, which is a, a, man, a mandate in in my uh, native country to uh, get your medical license. You have to work one year um, uh, in a in a rural setting. And uh, there are some interesting uh, situations. Uh, once you get to that chapter, you probably have read it. Read uh, there's some interesting uh, situations that I lived, uh, you know, in during those times. <clears throat> yes, you did. And so, like, did that not leave you kind of traumatized, or it it uh, it did. At least it left a uh, a, uh, a unforgettable, indelible memory in my in my mind, and. Uh, and definitely was uh, it was it was uh, a situation that is it's hard to to explain for someone who has not lived through a war. Um, mm -hmm. Those things just don't make sense um, when 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 you're in there when you're in uh, in the situation you just try to make sense of it all but it just doesn't and and all you all you have is is just a sense of self protection. I need to survive this somewhat like what we're doing right now with this coronavirus um we just need to survive this and somehow get through this and uh, and get 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 to the other side and that was basically what uh what my mindset was um <clears throat> at the moment um uh, I, I just wanted to make sure that uh somehow god would protect me and uh, and i'll get through it Yes, and that's why we have to stay prayed up these days, especially during this virus. Keep the faith and, and just know that it's going to be okay. We have so many people panicking, not knowing what to do. And we'll kind of pause on the book and speak on the coronavirus since we're here. So should people really be worried and panicking like they are? That's, that's, a, very, that's a very important question because I see – Chris, that um, there is a, sometimes there's like a dichotomy. Um, and this is one of those situations in which both, both um, areas can exist, coexist. One is be extra vigilant, extra careful. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and you're not being um, physician, you're not being, uh, no, definitely you need to be extra careful. Once we read the stories, about what's going on out there, um, you 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 need to take the extra precautions. Um, mm -hmm. And before I go to my next point, uh, just to tell you, uh, for the first time, my wife and I went to the grocery store uh, yesterday morning and got a few things and just got out of there as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I sprayed every item before it was being put in a box. I didn't, I didn't want the uh, grocery box. I just wanted a box because it would be just one thing that I don't have to worry about. So I put everything and I had my, my, my alcohol spray, every item I sprayed it and, and cleaned it. And you know, you doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be vinegar or it could be, uh, you know, so, uh, soapy water, uh, mm -hmm. with a something that I just wiped everything before putting it in my, in my box. Then got home and at the door we just took off our clothes it's just immediately just everything stayed out by the door 
and then shower immediately without touching doorknobs. And so this seems like crazy at the moment. <laughs> it's an extra, it's, it's really an extra level of precaution that we have to take. Because I, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, we all, you know, we, we don't know. I, I just don't want to become a statistic. So it's a similar situation of what happened and I describe us in so many details in my road to you. Um, but the other thing is, um, we just cannot go into panic. So we don't have to necessarily go into panic and, 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 and you know, be overly emotional, overly, um, overly uh, uh, scared, because then we become paralyzed and then we don't act properly. And then those two things can coexist. So don't be, don't be, don't be panicky, but also um, just be extra careful. Uh, something like that I relate in some of my stories about the being an ER doctor for so many years. You just learn to control your 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 emotions, and you just act. Um, and so I would encourage all, all your all your um, listeners to just be calm be positive, be optimistic, but be careful, extra, extra careful. Yes, please stay at home. They tell you to stay home. It's not that hard. We just want everyone to be safe. And I think a lot of that panic comes into because we don't know when this is going to end. Like it keeps growing at a rapid rate, but we, we're not really sure when it's going to slow down or when we're going to be able to get back out. Um, I know this is just your opinion. You don't know for sure. So how long do you think this is going to last? How long do you think we'll be quarantined before we're able to get back out there and live lives like we used to? Okay, that is a good question. And um, I've been paying attention to the um, scientific reports, to the epidemiologists, and also to the uh, 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 task force that's been put in place by the president in order to, to keep us uh, as informed as possible and mainly seeing the trends that uh, we see in other countries that have already uh, um, overcome uh, the, uh, the, 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 the tide, if you, if you can call it, um, basically China and, uh, and, and uh, uh, South Korea. Now, we are seeing similar patterns in Northern Italy, which is probably starting to, according to the reports I read this morning, starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the UK, England is, uh, is, is uh, going to go through a high, high uh, number. So China lasted about six weeks, six to eight weeks. Um, and, uh, and now they're, they can start to go back to work. And so that gives us an idea. Now they did not have, they were not prepared. Of course, they did not have all the measures that, uh, that were, that were implementing ahead of time. Uh, and the same in Northern Italy, Italy. The other thing is our medical, um, infrastructure is much more advanced than any of those countries. And, uh, and I am confident that we, with everyone's compliance, we will be able to get through this even quicker than those countries. So I would not uh, be overly concerned that this is going to be a year, six, six months, three months. <laughs> I think it's going to be something of a few weeks and eventually everything will start to die down. Um, but we need everybody's, everybody's participation. So this is not the, the work of of uh, government officials or the police or the CDC. It's, it's, it's basically mostly our own responsibility. Yes, it is. I try to stay home as much as possible. So do you suggest we wear our mask and our gloves? I saw Sarah had her N95 mask. I was like, oh, I want me one of those. <laughs> so do you think we need to wear our, our mask and everything every time we go out to the stores to the gas station and things like that? Definitely not. No, definitely not. Um, the reason why Sarah was wearing a mask is because um, is because she had uh, respiratory sim symptoms uh, for five days, and so we went and waited six hours at the uh, at the test center uh, to get her uh, her uh, nasal swab, 
And three days later, they called us that it was negative. But she was still symptomatic. There was, she, she was still having a, a slight cough. So mm -hmm. in order just to, to make sure that um, we didn't scare anybody with her cough, uh, <laughs> she uh, wore the mask. But she gave, thank God, and, and she's good. Now, wow. now, we didn't buy an A95. She had one for uh, a while back. And she just yeah, I saw she said her mother sent it to her. That was so amazing. That really touched me. Exactly. <laughs> I would not recommend anybody to go try to find N95 masks, not even surgical masks. The surgical masks are, don't work. Now, if, God forbid, you're infected with, with, with uh, COVID-19, definitely try to get a mask um, or definitely don't go out. But... Um, but you will need a mask in that case. But if you're not, just for prevention, it, the surgical mask does not work, and you, need, you don't need an N95. What you do is you take away from the safety that of, uh, of our, um, of our uh, uh, primary care um, uh, uh, people, our nurses, our doctors, who really, really are desperate for those N95s. They need them. Uh, and even though they're being mass produced right now, they, there's a shortage. So do not do not do that to them because we cannot afford for them to get sick. They're the ones who are taking care of us. Exactly. And you have an experience being an ER doctor. Um, do you think hospitals are prepared and ready for something like this? Uh, it's impossible for any hospital or any medical system in the world to be prepared for anything like this. It's it's uh, it's not only it's inconvenient it's just it's just uh nobody can have uh <clears throat> respirators and uh and uh hospital beds that are enough for something like this and it doesn't justify to have uh you know 10,000 beds just sitting there for years and years and years and decades um just sitting there doing nothing and and it just it just not it's not practical so <laughs> What, uh, what we do need to know is how to expand quickly our, our uh, uh, capabilities in different areas uh, in case of, of an epidemic uh, like this, which uh, I don't think is going to be the last one, and it's not, definitely not the first one. <clears throat> so um, that is, that is the, the main thing that probably we're learning, and not we we cannot criticize uh, anybody. We cannot criticize Italy for not having enough, enough um, uh, ICU beds because it's not justifiable for them to have a ton of ICU beds because it's something like this uh, uh, could not be uh, anticipated unless you have a rapid expansion plan in which you can set up hosp military, military hospitals or things like what we're doing right now with the... Um, with the hospital ships on both uh, east and west coast, uh, things like um, uh, 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 fast production of, of different uh, medical supplies that are needed. So all those things need to be uh, need to be enacted in a way that the response can be as fast as possible without having to go the the extra uh, expense of just maintaining facilities that will be empty for decades. Wow, great response, April. That's why I'm so glad we brought you on here. You are you are making us see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> and so to jump back into the book, that's our whole spill on the coronavirus, you guys. Um, I will have you know a way for you to reach Gabriel if you have any other direct questions about how to purchase this book. Or, you know, well, I'm not saying call him with your medical questions, but you get what I'm saying. So back to the road to you. Um, and I thought it was very interesting, you being a foreign exchange student through YFU. How was that for you? I noticed when you first got there, there wasn't a family. You had to stay with Mrs. Payne. So how was that experience for you? That was, uh, that was another very scary experience. 16 years old. I was very um, uh, enthusiastic and um, I just wanted to take on the opportunity to come to America out of all places, which was my dream to someday travel to America. Um, and as you, as you read from my from the introduction to some of the introductory chapters, 
Um, we were not a well-off family. We, we were okay, but it was not like, like we traveled internationally. Uh, that was kind of a, a luxury for us. And, uh, and back in the late 60s, mid 60s and early 70s, it was even more of a luxury than what it is today that it's, it has become more accessible. So definitely when I had this opportunity, it, it, I just jump, jump on board and, um, you know, everything happens for the good. And I teach that in, in, in many of, of my chapters that whatever God does. And uh, when, when, when you read the book, you're going to see that every challenge is designed to bring something good behind it. Um, as I'm sure that this challenge we're living right now is, or, or the challenges of surviving the, the drug war brought some challenge, some, some um, strengths in me that, uh, that have eventually helped me in other aspects of my life. But definitely um, uh, that challenge of, of landing in, in Detroit, Michigan, um, finding the uh, YFU director, uh, and then letting me know then at that point that I had no family to, to go. Right. <laughs> but you had to get all the way over there just to tell you, oh, you have nowhere to go to. Right. So I just imagine um, nowadays we have social media and you can communicate with people instantly all across the globe. Back then it was not like that. Back then it was uh, 1976. Uh, you had to, uh, you know, make a phone call uh, through the regular landline, um, and and uh, it was very expensive, and uh, you you know you had to talk just a few things. And so I didn't get that privilege of having to talk, to tell my parents what was going on. So that was another another complicating factor. So they did not know anything about me until after a few weeks. Uh, they were getting reports through other YFU uh, people that that I, was, I had been placed in a temporary home and boy that was uh, that was quite an experience um <laughs> to live there i'm not going to tell you exactly what happened you just need to read the book uh yeah don't miss that story that that was a, that was a very powerful story <laughs> <laughs> i saw you went through a lot like the whole you had y'all had to sneak and get crackers when they would leave the room. Like no way that they brought him over here and treated him like this. <laughs> I would have lost my mind. As a teenager, then you can't speak with your parents. So you're just kind of basically out there. Exactly. And and that makes, and that kind of builds, build the warrior on me. And uh, when, when you're faced with a situation, and, and the, the whole book is, is filled with stories and situations of uh, very personal and, and, and sometimes hard, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, uh, challenging, but, um, but they always bring something good from you. They always bring something good. At least, um, even if you don't recognize it, um, I invite you to recognize the goodness in your own personal situations. If you've gone through divorce, if you've gone through um, uh, getting uh, cheated out of your possessions or getting uh, um, someone or an abusive relationship or um, so my book is not only about telling you what my things, you know, what things happen to me, which I do up in, 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 in my new detail. If you really want to know me, read my book and you'll get to see um, uh, my vulnerabilities in, in that book. But the main concept I and mean, the main reason for writing this book is to inspire you to see your own challenges and learn from them and cherish those challenges and make them part of you with pride, with honor, because they were sent your way for a reason. And even though my, uh, um, I don't know how many Jewish people are there in, um, in this audience, but uh, being uh, raised and, and, and uh, being influenced by, by my Jewish culture, um, I have learned to um, see those things as, as, a, uh, as a greater good. Like God has a greater uh, master plan. And we are just a, we're just a part of his master plan. We just don't know when or how we play in that huge chess game that is going all over 
the, the, the planet, the universe, and we're just part of that. And somehow, uh, even though we make our own decisions, even though we make our own choices, uh, right or wrong or whatever, all of that just ties together in a big web that, that he knows, and I'm talking about God, yeah. that he knows what's going on. And we don't know what's going on. We just, we're just doing our best to do the best with what we have at the moment. So we don't see the big picture. And that's part of the inspiration that, that I hope you get from my book is that there's, there's something greater and that you can become even better as a person. So don't see those challenges as with bitterness in your heart. Um, and, um, and so, so it's important to learn to, to forgive. It was very hard for me to forgive so many things. Um, but you learn, you have, you learn to forgive and, and you learn to, uh, to rise above. And, um, that's, that's the main, that's the main framework. Yes. I loved it. And you have such a wonderful journey and so inspiring. And like you said, you know, no matter what you're going through, there's always something greater coming out of it. So you just have to live through it and keep the faith, keep your head up and not get you know, discouraged. I know you spoke about how um, even you, you, you had to work to find a job around here. You went from being like a doctor to being a waiter to finally landing a job with your medical research. The one thing I admired about it is you said that you got out there and did what you knew how to do best, which was knock on doors, actually meet people face to face um, and look for a job. So many people are so uninspired, especially right now with so much going on, but they don't have that courage to actually get out there. So how was your experience with that after hearing so many no's and finally getting your yes? That was, uh, that was very, um, that was, that was another, another interesting challenge, Chris, now that you asked me. Uh, I landed in this country 19 and a half years ago. Um, and I, no, I'm sorry, 18 and a half years ago. And uh, basically, I had gone, I had, I had uh, lost everything. And I just came here with four suitcases, my, my wife at the time, my two daughters, and a dog. And that was it. And I, uh, I landed uh, and uh, just hoping that I could start from scratch. And um, the whole thing just became very, very, um, very, and a very interesting challenge uh, because I was a doctor, but I could not practice my medicine, medicine here. Number one, because I needed to go through all the, the medical testing um, which is um, our, um, the medical license uh, licensing system that I really did could not afford it at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, I needed a special visa in order to do that. So the visa that I had was not would not allow me to do that. So it was quite a dilemma on on how to approach that. So I wanted to do, make my immigration totally legal, and that's, uh, you know, thank God uh, all my process was, was done the right way. Uh, but I landed, and I just went door trying to sell my products back then and trying to find a job that would allow me to get my immigration situation resolved and hopefully something more stable that I could uh, live. So I, uh, I went from door to door at the university, door to door to door to door. Uh, I, I was just knocking on doors and giving away my, my, my uh, resumes. And that's, you, that's, that's not something that most people do. They, you just go to the um, uh, um, human resources office and, uh, and then from there it's done in a different way. But okay. that was not enough for me. I needed to get a job immediately. I was desperate. And when you're desperate, you learn to do some, so many things and you realize that you have so many other talents that you're not using. And that was one of them. And thank God I, I found a wonderful man, that uh, wonderful uh, physician who uh, uh, believed in me and, uh, and, and trusted. And, uh, and thanks to him, I, uh, I was able to, to put my foot, you know, in, in good grounding to, to get started. Yes, and that was with the University of Mississippi, right? Uh, well, I changed the locations and I changed the uh, the name 
just for oh, okay i was about to say like i'm from mississippi gabriel <laughs> right right exactly i changed those because of uh, mm, uh privacy privacy yeah legal <laughs> reasons we don't need any because uh... <laughs> my book is not designed to uh to make anybody you know I, I describe my especially my divorce and my relationship with my daughters in a very uh, uh, specific, very detailed way, and things like that have um, uh, need to be, um, you know, I need to be sensitive to to their identity. So, because the idea is just to describe my my situation and my and my challenges, not be taken as a payback or as a, or as something that I want to put anyone, you know, uh, on a light because. It's uh, it's something that I lived, and and in this um, uh, a little a little parenthesis here, Chris, if you allow me, um, in in Jewish law, the concept of uh, and I explain in my book of lashon hara of speaking speaking evil of people, is uh, is is very much frowned upon. Unfortunately, it it gets um, it it happens more often than 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 it should. Um, and so one of the, one of the things I want to encourage everybody is to learn to watch what we say about people. And, and, um, and so, so that's, that's a very sensitive thing that I, I prefer to, um, to, to keep, um, you know, to keep very, very, uh, very, a very clean, uh, language. And that's the reason why I change locations and I change names. Uh, so in fact, in, in, common conversations out there or especially when we invite people my wife sarah and i my my adorable wife uh and i invite people uh, oftentimes on, on friday nights for dinner well no, not now but <laughs> when we can uh, we uh we have this rule we don't talk about people we talk about ideas we talk about concepts we talk about uh situations but we don't talk about people and and that makes uh, makes life so much cleaner, yeah. uh, and avoiding avoiding um, talking. Uh, even even sometimes uh, there are things that you can say about somebody that could be positive, but sometimes they have a backhanded way of of of, uh, of criticizing that person, even through your positive uh, speech. Uh, so those things uh, we analyze very in, 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 in a lot of detail in, in Jewish law and, and in our behavior. So that's something that um, I also teach in my book uh, about how important that is and how, how I suffered from a, um, a really an epidemic of, uh, of, of, of um, uh, um, what's the word, um, uh, defaming campaign against me. Mm -hmm. uh, during my, my the, the that last difficult time of my my divorce, which I also describe in detail, um, and how a a uh, partner that you have shared so much with can really damage you, yeah, uh, out there, you know, in in, in socially, uh, and I you know I I paid a very heavy price in my uh, community, and uh, you can get ostracized and things like that because. Um, as the you know, as the, as the Bible says, the Torah, the, it's the first one who speaks is the usually the first story that is being believed, mm -hmm. and uh, and then when you come to defend yourself, that's when things tend to start to balance out. But during those times, uh, people will really create a bad image of you. So I would encourage everybody, just even if you're going through a bad situation with somebody. Um, just it's best not to uh, air out your grievances or your difficulties, especially now with social media. And and uh, and when you live in a uh, closed uh, religious community or in a or in an environment where everybody knows everybody, that can uh, spread like wildfire and can really destroy lives. Oh, trust me, I feel like you're speaking about my life. I went through the same thing with my divorce. Like a lot of things being said that weren't true and things of that nature. You know how it kind of gets nasty. But one thing I did like in your chapter on forgiveness, you did speak about this and why it's so important for us to let things go. 
And I quote, you said at one point, as of that moment, they did not owe me an apology. They did not owe me anything at all. This was at the same time, my personal jubilee year, I was also releasing my quote unquote slaves from my mind and negative thoughts and feelings. Because your thoughts and feelings can really weigh you down. And that encouraged me to even let go of some things, um, some grievances I might have with others that I don't really speak on, but they're there in my heart. Um, I think our audience can learn from that. It's much easier to let things go and forgive. How long did it really take you to get to a point of forgiveness? That is, that is a very, very powerful question, Chris. Um, and I'll be honest with you and everyone who's listening, I'm not done. It's, it's a daily process. Um, what, what really triggered my, my change in, 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 in the way I was feeling was a man that I saw that had lived all the unimaginable tragedies that I could, that I, I, I just, it was just hard for me to, to understand how difficult some chapters of his life had been. And he said, you know, Gabriel, I, um, I, de I decided to forgive. And that was it. And I said, that, that's it. So I came back from that trip with Sarah. We were in Atlanta when I met this man. I, he just inspired me so much. I told her, you know what? I'm going to forgive. But still, uh, there are still feelings that come to, to, come to mind or, uh, or triggers when you see something or something happens and just triggers that emotion. And it's a, it's a part of, of, of you that, that will probably stay there. I don't know. i probably stay there for a long time. But the, the important thing, Chris, is just to make the decision to start to forgive. And that's, it's a process. And every time it gets easier and easier and easier, I don't know if it's, it will ever disappear, but it's just a matter of, uh, of okay. And, and what, you, um, what you read or what you just uh, quoted is, is how I was able to use the concept of the Shemitah year of the seven uh, year cycles in the land of Israel in the times of the temple um, when the temple was standing uh, and still we still we still follow the, the traditions and some of the of the of the laws of the Shemitah every uh, every seven years uh, there's a, re, a year of rest for the land during that year of rest for the land there was also something that was very important it is all debts were forgiven all debts were forgiven. And a Jew was not allowed to say no to another Jew who needed money and was asking you for money. If you had the way to help him, you helped him. And the problem is when you have six months until the Shemitah years, then probably it's going to be very hard for you to find someone who will lend you, you know, a couple thousand dollars because you need to pay your bills and you're behind. And, and he knows that in six months, you can say to him, I don't owe you anything because the Torah says, I don't owe you anything. <laughs> they have to be forgiven. So that, is, that was a very, very powerful, powerful lesson and how to just let go. I know people owe me money, but <laughs> at this point, God is telling me they don't owe me anything. Just let and it go. <laughs> And the same thing happens with uh, the same thing happens with 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 the the sensation the 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 idea that people owe you an apology, and it's like a debt that just remains unpaid because most of the times it's just they're just not going to pay you. They're just not going to apologize to you, and you're feeling that someday they will they will apologize. Every seven cycles, every seven of these shemitah cycles. Um, after seven, so at, at year 49, then there was an additional year that was called the year of the Jubilee, or the, in Hebrew we call it Yovel. And that year there was, on top of, of everything, all the land had to be returned to its original owners, which means that if you bought land, uh, that, that land, you could only use it for that time. If you had slaves, the slaves had the... the um, the um, uh, opportunity to be free every seven years. So not only the debts were, 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 uh, were forgiven, but the slaves could, uh, would, 
where where we would be able to uh, go back to their their place wherever they were freed. Now, slaves in Israel is not like the slavery in America. Slaves in Israel back in the times of the Bible were very very different. The slaves were well taken care of. The slaves had to, the the, uh, the whoever owned a slave, they, he had to uh, uh, pay them, take good care of them, feed them, him and his wife. He had an, uh, an opportunity to even marry another woman and have, uh, and then the master had to pay for that. And they had rights. It was a very different situation. Sometimes we get things confused. Um, and, and, and back in those times, uh, uh, the person became a slave basically because he owed money that he could not repay. So the way he would repay that debt was through the court would say, well, you're going to serve this person for, you know, a year or six months or two years or whatever. And, uh, and that way you'll, you'll repay that debt. So after seven years, they had the chance to, uh, they, had the, they, they were freed uh, at, the, at the year of the Shemitah. However, many slaves were so happy. They liked living with, with the, that life that they decide to stay. And they had to go through a ritual process and say, no, you're, I'm going to stay with you. And it was, uh, and, and if they both agreed, then they went through a, uh, a legal process and he stayed. But that did not happen in the Jubilee year. The Jubilee year, everybody was forced to be free. Everybody. Oh, wow. So the level of freedom that you could get at, the, at this uh, seven-year cycle, the Shemitah year, uh, was even increased at the at the jubilee year because even if you wanted to stay with with um, your uh, uh, master, which at that time would be more like an employer that was that was paying you your wages and it was taking care of you, um, it was more like like nope, you have to be now you have to go home. Definitely, you you need to leave. And and is described in the Bible how sad those those goodbyes were between them it was like you know i've been with you for 20 years now I'm, i have to and it was it was very hard they made a meal a, a go away party for them it was very very um it was very special but the same thing with with uh, i decided to to connect that with my feelings of of either revenge or my feelings of anger or or hurt from uh, from previous experiences um especially after my divorce um uh, that uh, I said, you know, you have to let go, and, and everything, everything that happened happened because that was part of God's God's plan. Um, so, so you do your best to defend yourself. Of course, it's, you, I'm not telling anybody to be a doormat to anything, but just defend yourself and, and do the best you can. And when things are done, they're done. That's it. Just let, just let go. Yes, it can be hard letting go, but you have to let it go. You don't want it to consume you. I like the quote you put in the book that said, never wish them pain. That's not who you are. If they caused you pain, they must have pain inside. Wish them to heal. That was very touching. I actually posted that on my Instagram earlier today. But um, one other chapter we said we were going to talk about was regarding your sister. And you were very protective over one of them, but eventually you all kind of lost contact. So kind of tell us about your relationship with him and how that was for you growing up and over the years. Well, that's, uh, that's, that was a, that's a, a very, very fun chapter that I wrote. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's very interesting because uh, my original uh, draft did not have that chapter. And then uh, Sarah and I uh, were discussing about the book one, one, one morning and, uh, and she mentioned something about my sisters, and we both talked like, Look, you know what? I should just write a chapter on them because it's it's been a it's been a journey, uh, and sometimes um, I don't, sometimes relationships between siblings are are challenging, and and believe me, my my situation uh, and my relationship with them uh, went through many challenges all throughout the years. Um, <clears throat> growing up, we were very much uh, very much close to each other even though you know i had very mean fights with my uh with my sister i'm the oldest and i have two sisters the middle sister she was uh uh her and i we just didn't get along and we were fighting now we were nine years old ten years old eleven you know that's that we it's kind of normal um but yeah they were they were pretty intense (laughs) and um 
And, and then uh, life, went, life went on and uh, we moved to different countries, different places. And, 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 um, and, and then um, there was financial problems in my family. Uh, my mother lost the business and uh, there was a lot of blame and there was a lot of, a lot of difficult times. Back then, my sisters were not living in Colombia. One was living in Canada. The other one was living in, um, in, in, in England. And uh, I was in Colombia, and somehow I, I was also blamed for, for, for that. And there was a big division in the family, and I'm sure that um, many of, uh, of, of your listeners can relate to financial difficulties uh, causing strife. In, oh, in yeah. The one very common uh, denominator of, of many um, um, situations that, that just break, break up families uh, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it's, uh, it, it causes irreparable, irreparable damage. And we didn't speak for many, many years, um, unfortunately. Uh, but we decided to reconnect and we started to rebuild our relationship after many years. Uh, life changed pretty much for all of us. Uh, we were all already older. We had kids. We're basically all of them either teenagers or, and, and, and it's uh, already a time where where we decided to just let go of all of that, which was had happened a long time ago. Um, so, so then, uh, right uh, after after uh, during the time that my mother passed away, and before that, we we made an agreement and a, a pact. And and I uh, I hope I inspire people with with this situation because uh, you see, my my sisters are and I are very very different. We're very different. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you have relatives that have that have p- different political leniencies, but politics also can um, separate you from from your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this was the case. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a strong conservative, and both my sisters are liberal, and and we basically don't agree politically on anything. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I became uh, a religious observant Jew, and uh, they're just they're just secular. My my uh, youngest sister, who lives in Canada, she doesn't practice anything. Uh, she just considers herself Jewish, but more more of a like cultural Jewish, like you know, like you say, well, I'm you know half Irish and, and something like that. It's just like a like a something in your in your DNA, but really she doesn't practice anything. Uh, but she's connected with some pr- traditions. My other sister is a little bit more connected, but nobody would imagine that that we came came from the same father, same mother, uh, and uh, and and the same household. Uh, it's 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 amazing. Um, so we're very different. We love we we love our countries, uh, different, totally different countries, different cultures. But at that point, um, when we were together in Canada at my sister's place. We made a deal, the three of us, is we're going to stay connected, united, no matter what. There's no politics. There's no uh, disagreement. There's no. Um, uh, uh, there's nothing that can break us apart, no matter what. And it's uh, that that uh, that agreement has been challenged a few times, um, but we we rem- we remind each other. Okay, we made this made this deal. I know you don't agree with uh, the government of Israel or, or this or the Palestinians or, or what happened with the president here or what they're doing there. It, no matter what, we stay together. We stay connected. That's thing. I think that's so important for families these days to so please stay connected with your loved ones. If you all have fallen out, now is the time to you know, get back on the right path with one another because there's so much going on. Your story really encourages that. Um, do you continue to have a great relationship with your sisters even to this day? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, we do. We do. And now that uh, that we have a little bit more time on our hands, um, you know, we we chat. We uh, we have our uh, our chat room, our uh, WhatsApp group, and we uh, we post our things, and we just we talk and we share our thoughts, and and that's fine. And we just accept each other, you know. That's 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 the thing. You you accept them as they are. I don't try to change. They don't try. I don't try to change them. They don't try to change me. 
Um, they know they know my views. They know my politics. They know my observance. They know my uh, my love for America. They love all those things. They know all those things, and I, I and they respect that, and I respect their their points of view and their and their their situations. And we just uh, encourage each other to to do the best. And uh, and and I, I I really I really hope that that helps uh, many people to to get inspired by to either reconnect or try to get past all those, all those uh, things that are really not that important. Uh, right. Those barriers that we put up. So Gabriel, is there anything else you want our audience to know about my role to you or yourself? Any other precautions we need to take with COVID-19? Well, um, I think uh, this is this is this has been uh, it has been so such so delightful to talk to you, Chris. It's been it's been so so special. Um, I, I was just going to um, to uh, uh, read a little bit uh, of my road to you, just a little bit to to give you an idea of, uh, of the type of stories that I uh, I live in. Basically, just um, just give you a little a little taste of, of what the book is and uh, remember you can go to amazon uh and just find it there my road to you by gabriel rizanzev uh my email if you want to uh to email me is g from gabriel g and then my last r e z as in zebra o n z as in zebra e w at hotmail.com you can email me and uh, i'd love to hear from you so here's a, a little excerpt from my road to you. It was a cool afternoon in late 1989. The drug war was ravishing Medellin. The drug cartels were setting roadside bombs all over the city and activating them when police vehicles, usually pickup trucks carrying up 15 to 20 men, drove near them. The city had recently begun a plan to increase police presence in the local neighborhoods via Centros de Atención Inmediata which are immediate detention centers, also known as CHI. These were no more than police booths strategically located throughout the city's suburbs. Diagonal from my mother's second floor apartment in San Lucas, a beautiful design CHI had been recently built, yet it had not been inaugurated. My apartment in Envigado was only a few miles away when I heard the loud explosion. I could not see the plume, but I knew that another roadside bomb had gone off. How many deaths this time? I made a silent prayer for the possible victims, most likely young policemen. It didn't take long for my phone to ring, and I picked up to hear on the other side my mother's loud cries. She couldn't explain what had happened, but I knew I had to get there immediately. As I reached my mother's elegant building, I saw the destruction of the southern facade and how the Kai had been reduced to a pile of bricks, cement, tiles, and dirt. As the guard for the building let me in. He explained that a couple of kids in a motorcycle dropped a bomb inside the Kai and sped off. My mother was in, in tears. She was in, in her bed, her hands covering her face, scared and confused. The apartment inside had been rattled. Its beautiful decorations and pictures had been moved or knocked over by the blast. My sister's bedroom nearest where the bomb went off was in shambles. The glass window had been shattered. The glass shard, uh, shards had ripped through the white curtains and her room had been turned upside down. Becky was not there, and fortunately, mommy's bedroom faced the opposite side of the apartment, saving her from injury or even from losing her life. So this is a little, a little uh, story of, uh, of, of how life was back then in the late 80s. And uh, I, want, I want to encourage everyone to uh, just, just uh, make the best of, of the things that happened to you and, uh, and just Learn to love your life, love God, and, and forgive. 